Good morning, Stone Tower Church. It is exciting to be in the presence of God and learn from Him. I think you would agree with me that we are living in a very busy times. Frequent natural disasters. The economy is unstable. Politics are explosive. Relations are beyond tension. The world is in crisis and so is the church. And this is very disturbing. It's disturbing to me and I believe that it is disturbing to you as well. And as a Christian, I need to know in the midst of this crisis, where am I? To me, this is the most important question one can ask to himself. Therefore, I chose the topic for my sermon, Man, Where Are You? This is the exact question that God asked Adam and Eve when their world was in crisis. Because this sermon is not about the world and the problems of my surrounding, this sermon is about how, do, how does what I, is happening in the world and in the church today affect and shape me as a person, determining the trajectory of my relationship with each other and with God. In order to study this topic, we will have to return to the very beginning, which is Genesis chapter 3. Adam was puzzled by God with a meaningful question. Men, where are you? This question can be considered in three aspects. First aspect of this question, men, where are you? lays in the very psyche of the first couple. Men, where are you mentally and emotionally in your crisis? You see, to find a man created perfectly, who yesterday was placed by God as a ruler over this world, hiding in a thicket, putting together fig leaves to cover his nakedness, speaks at least about his inadequacy. And in essence, it speaks about his mental disorder. Because the physical functional expression of a person reflects his internal mental processes. What is a mental disorder, you would ask me? A simple version of Definition is, it is a disruption in the sphere of feelings, thinking, and behavior that causes significant distress or impairment of personal functioning. Therefore, God turns to Adam and Eve in an attempt to help them make a sober, honest assessment of themselves. Adam, Eve, analyze yourself, understand yourself, find yourself in the context of what's happening. The second aspect of the question, man, 
Where are you? Lays in the field of Adam and Eve's social relationships. Adam, Eve, how did the choice you made change the dynamics of your relationship to each other and to the creation as a whole? You sit together in the same thicket and you are doing the same weaving fig leaves activity. But are you really together? Are you one? What happened to the recent triumphant proclamation, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh? The third question or aspect of the question, man, where are you, lays in the field of personal spiritual relationship with God. Adam, Eve, what happened between you and me? Why are you hiding from me? Who told you you are naked? So, God calls man to analyze himself. Their mental and emotional state. Their behavior in interaction with each other. And their spiritual relationship with God. Analyzing self is not a Freudian idea. Rather, it is a tool that God wants us to use to help us find ourselves in the turmoil of events. And without this analysis of oneself, neither solving problems nor salvation is possible. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul gives Timothy, a young minister, the same formula of salvation in a concise form. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both have saved thyself and those who are listening to you. We are ready to delve into the teaching of the Bible every day, and we are doing that. From Sabbath to Sabbath, we are studying the Bible. But the problem is that we do not spend time in introspection. We do not even attempt to study ourselves as scrupulously as we study the Bible. We don't know how to study ourselves. And that's why we develop as one-sided people who have the appearance of godliness. We have developed an understanding from the Bible of what godliness is. But in order for the godliness to manifest in us, we must be facing ourselves deep enough to remove the barriers we have that prohibits that godliness. And we need to intentionally cultivate godliness in us. It doesn't grow by a chance. If there is any kind of godliness in us, then it is more dictated from the outside sources, such as the Bible, society, 
and the church. And that is not bad. But the Apostle Paul invites us to study our own life in the light of the scriptures. So that our morality, our godliness is not a product of outside societal formation, but rather a personal formation. A person formation, character producing and spirit ennobling act of God in us. In educational institutions, there is a certain distribution of time for students in order to guarantee the digestibility of the material. For one hour of lecture material is provided three hours of homework that the students might master the material. Well, tell yourself, have you ever spent one hour of introspection against three, pardon me, three hours of introspection against one hour of Bible study? How then we are going to master this divine material to change and to become the image of Christ? Human beings usually don't like deep self examination. Deep self-examination means I have to face and deal first of all with myself, with my personal hurts and my brokenness, my deficiencies of character, my thwarted sense of personal godliness. And that is painful even to think about. Deep self-examination necessitates for one to make a commitment and take personal ownership to change self and changing well, is not easy. Changing self is a long, hard, meticulous and painful task that requires listening to timely, constructive critique. And this in itself is a gamut of personal reactions, emotions, and frustrations. Changing self necessitates that I choose to stay bare or naked in God's presence, in my thicket, without assigning my guilt to others. That I invest time to making daily, concrete, God-led decisions to change. Changing self necessitates that I have courage to stay truthful to the transformative act of God without running away. Oftentimes, we say, I have believed in Christ, and therefore I am a new creation. And that is true. But we as new creations often forget about our duties to fight to the blood struggling against the sin. Paul is not inviting any to fight their neighbor's sin to blood. He is inviting me, you, us, to fight our own sin in our own skin to blood. 
How many of us are bleeding over our personal, your personal sins? Should I be bleeding for my own sins? I would not have time to be thinking of that of my neighbors. Think about this in the context of Jewish perspective. If blood is a representation of the soul or life, then to fight to blood therefore means to engage all vital aspects of my nature, such as mind, emotions, and my behaviors, in such a deep cleanup that I may be freed from the action and the effect of sin in my daily living with God and people. And this means that I need to do deep self-examination, judging myself against the word of God. So, God asks Adam and Eve a question. Man, where are you? Adam honestly admits that he was naked, afraid, and hid himself from God's presence. Have you eaten from the fruit? God is asking. And Adam failed to admit his responsibility. But he blamed it easily on his wife. Eve in turn blamed, blamed her guilt on the serpent. Listen to this. From this, we can see clearly that from the very beginning, Adam and Eve proved that with the fall, man acquired an ugly ability to see not himself in the true light, but to identify his own problems by attributing them to others. Well, let me repeat this. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve proved that, they, that men acquired an ugly ability to see not himself in the true light, but to identify his own problems by attributing them to others. This is exactly what Apostle Paul is talking about in Rome, chapter 2, verse 3. Do you really think, man, that you will escape the judgment of God by condemning those who do such things and yourself doing the same? So I'm doing it. I'm doing just the same as everybody does. But I do not see myself. I see my sins in you. Well, probably it is a very good indicator that when somebody is accusing somebody, it is their own problem. No? According to the Bible, it is. Why is that important to study self and the scripture? You will say to bring yourself in harmony with the teaching, and that is true. But... There is something else of such a crucial importance with us that lays at the very bedrock 
of our nature and that we almost never think about. I offer you a quote, a series of quotes, actually. Every organ of the body was made to be servant to the mind. Testimonies for the church. The mind is the capital of the body. The mind controls the whole man. All our actions, good or bad, have their source in the mind. It is the mind that worships God and allies, allies us to heavenly beings. There are many invalids today who will ever remain so because they cannot be convinced that their experience is not reliable. Isn't it what Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 12? Therefore I beseech you, brethren, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God for your reasonable service, and do not conform to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that you may know what is the will of God, good, pleasing, and perfect. So God created us intelligent beings and established the mind as the capital of our body, a governing and decision-making center. That is why he ex expects reasonable worship from us. Also, God gave us emotions, the ability to experience inner excitement, as a response to what we perceive in the real world or in our imagination. And in this context, I invite you to follow with me two conversations. First conversation, God's speaking to Adam. Listen what the Bible says. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree in the garden you shall eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Tell me, how would you categorize this conversation? Does God appeal to the mind or to the emotions? Mind. You can feel whatever you want, but he appeals to your mind. Well, how about the commandments? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no others God, other gods before me. Is God appealing to mind or to the emotions? To the mind. Or well, how about this? When God directly involves himself in our personal life, he tells prophet Jeremiah, go and tell my people that they will go into captivity to Babylon because they disobeyed my commandments. Is he speaking to the mind or to the emotions? To the mind. Well, let us make a little conclusion here. From these observations, we see that when God presents his will to a person, it is purely rational 
and appeals to the human capital faculty, the mind. Regardless of how a person may feel and what emotions a person might have. Now, let us listen to the conversation. Our grand-great-grandmother had with serpent. And the serpent said to the woman, Did God truly say, do not eat from any tree in the paradise? Tell me, how would you categorize this conversation? Does the snake appeal to the reasoning or to the emotions? Oh, it could be 50-50, right? Tell me for sure it could be the addressing the mind, but also, is it for sure addresses emotions? He uses the reasons as a means, but appeals to the emotions. Let us list what emotions the snake stimulates in the conversation with Eve. A doubt about God. Is God genuine? Right? Alertness. Oh, wait a minute. Uncertainty. Curiosity. Interest. And also a self-doubt in the sense, do I really know everything? You see how many emotions he stimulates? Eve is responding. And by her response, you are sure she knows the information. And the woman said to the serpent, the fruit of the trees we can eat. Only the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the paradise, God said, do not eat them and do not touch them lest you die. So she knows the information. Serpent continues. And the serpent said to the woman, no, you will not surely die. Just imagine Eve. God says, you will surely die. Serpent says affirmatively, you will not surely die. Tell me, where is Eve? She is utterly perplexed. And in a complete impasse. What's going on? with what set of emotions she is being left. Even more doubts, more uncertainty, more frustration and confusion, but at the same time, she is intrigued, interested. She gets emotionally motivated, picking on a desire to find out the truth. Serpent continues. But God knows that on the day you eat them, Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like gods, knowing good and evil. What a beautiful promise. It's appealing. How can I lose this opportunity? He is presenting God as a canny, hypocritical ill-wisher. What feelings the serpent continues to stimulate in Eve? 
a sense of injustice, a sense of limitation, resentment, deception, which stimulates distrust, which stimulates disgust and contempt for hypocrisy, which stimulates disobedience. Disobedience stimulates confidence in personal rightness and determination which leads to a fight for the just cause in the desire to get by any means what rightfully belongs to her, but at the will of someone's caprice, she is denied of. Well, let us stop here and make a conclusion. In the conversation between God and Adam, you feel a reasonable restraint, groundedness, and factuality. In the case of the snake talking to Eve, you feel an uncontrollable emotional drive. The snake constantly stimulates her emotions. Eva reached such a peak of emotional excitement that overwhelmed her mind. And then all restrictions, all appeals to reason, and all authorities no longer had any meaning in her life. Driven by emotions, Eve became her own authority. Listen to this. The serpent realized that through the means of steering a person's emotions, it is possible to control a person's mind and actions. I'll repeat that. The serpent realized that through the means of steering a person's emotions, it is possible to control a person's mind and person's actions. The illusion is created that it is the person himself who makes decisions with his mind, not realizing that he is being manipulated by the one who stirred up his emotions to produce certain actions. Under the influence of the strong stimulations of emotions, Three critical things happened to change in Eve. The first change. Eve experienced the first and strongest crisis of faith and trust in her life. The serpent led her to destroy her ability to trust God and her husband. by steering her emotions. The crisis of faith is inevitably connected with the crisis of personality. Pay attention. Eve, first of all, betrayed herself, her own mind, and her reasoning. All her worldview about herself, about God and and Adam collapsed. Her whole mental and spiritual integrity was destroyed. 
what he knew and cherished as the truth. She rejected in a heartbeat as untrue. Second change. Eve experienced an episode of an intense mental breakdown. Her emotions were out of control and in a direct conflict with correct mindful reasoning. Her behaviors proved unreasonable and inadequate based on the reality that she was God's perfect creation, capable of making right and wise decisions. As it happens, at the peak of such an emotional drive, Eve broke down. Her harmony between the mind, emotions, and behavior was disrupted and out of order. Her mood was abruptly replaced by persecutory ideations. She felt a deep sense of shame and guilt without admitting guilt. In a senseless attempt to cover herself by weaving fig leaves, although no one shamed them and no one threatened them. The third change. God created Adam and Eve in his own image and likeness and defined the mind as the capital of the body, the center of decision-making through which God communicates with his creation. But the serpent reformatted man by defining his emotions as the center of decision-making, reassigning the mind to be the subservient to the urges of emotions. Let me repeat this. God created us in his image and assigned our mind to be the capital of our body. Meaning, the controlling agent of our emotions and our behaviors. And the serpent reformatted us. Recreated us in his image, if you will. By redefining us. Defining our emotions as the center of decision making. Reassigning the mind to be the subservient to the urges of emotions. Conclusion. This condition became the master tool in the hands of Satan. This is how he fights against God by causing strife between people. From then and on, a fierce battle will always go on in a person's psyche between his mind and his emotions for the right to rule. Do you understand what happened? 
driven by strong emotions and displeasures, Eve became mentally unbalanced. And in this state of being, she took the responsibility into her hands to determine what is good and what is bad in the Garden of Eden. She took the fruit of the tree and ate it and served it to Adam as well. What God declared as good, Eve determined as bad. What God declared as good, as bad, Eve determined as good. A complete reflection of a demonic presence against fighting against God. Do you see that? We were once created in the image of God and we were reflecting God's character. And now we are being recreated in the image of Satan. As a consequence, not only she suffered the anguish of her mental disorder, but also her intimate harmonious relationship with Adam were destroyed. And the relationship with God badly severed. Look at the Cain story. God is speaking to Cain because he got angry over God not accepting his sacrifice. And God is appealing to his reasoning. He invites Cain to introspection. Find yourself, Cain. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Further, God points him to look into the right direction. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you refuse to do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires you, but you must master it. In a fit of strong, unhinged emotions, from seeming injustice and rejection, being full of envy and uncontrollable rage and anger, Cain became mentally unstable. He lets his mind become the subservient to his emotions. And came up with a plan to get his brother out into the fields to kill him. What God declared as bad, Cain, like Eve, declared as good. That's why the Bible says, the madman said in his heart, there is no God. Letting the emotions to govern over the role of the mind is madness. The highest form of rejecting God. Sarah, in a fit of emotions, misuses her mind in order to get an offspring, which contrary to a reasonable promise from God, who told her clearly, a son will be born from you. Moses, in the heat of emotion, smote an Egyptian to death 
And eight years later, in the heat of emotion, compromises his mind. He hits the rock which prohibited him to enter the promised land. In the heat of emotion, Amnon exploits his mind to find a way to rape his sister Tamar. In the heat of emotion, the priest, pardon me, David, is abusing his mind and the fullness of royal power to hide his fornication and did not stop until he murdered Uriah. In the heat of emotions, the priests are overtaxing their mind in plotting against Jesus to reject and kill him. Listen carefully. The subordination of the mind to the emotions is the creation of Satan in humans, which makes communication with God impossible and communication with one's neighbor fratricidal. Let me repeat this. The subordination of the mind to the emotions is the creation of Satan in humans, which makes communication with God impossible and communication with one's neighbor fratricidal. Friends, the great controversy does not only take place in a, on a historical social, social scale around the Catholic Church. The great controversy by and large takes place in our own psyche. Either our mind subordinated to God will be the center of making God pleasing decisions or our emotions will become the center of decision making rendering the mind a subservient to the heat of the passions regardless of the nature of one's emotions. Oh, pardon me. Of the nature of one's motives. I'm sorry. This is the path of self-affirmation which is called you will be like gods, knowing good and evil. In fact, listen to what the serpent is focusing on. When you trust on your emotions and not on the voice of God's will, then only do you acquire the ability to accurately judge what is good and what is bad for you. Doesn't that mean you will be like gods? This is why we need to always study ourselves in the light of the scripture. Three hours of introspection against one hour of Bible study. Especially when in crisis. So that we do not repeat the grave mistakes of Eve, 
Cain and many of those who based on their emotions determined for themselves what is good and what is bad, neglecting the reasonableness of God's will. That is why the Bible says that we must have the mind of Christ. And also Bible says that we must have the feelings which are in Christ Jesus. Jesus never allowed himself to act on the impulse of his emotions to determine what is good and what is bad. All his emotions were carefully weighed and strictly subordinated to the control of his mind, which in turn was strictly subordinated to his father's will. Ellen G. White continues, there are many invalids today who will never remain, who, who will ever remain so because they cannot be convinced that their experience is not reliable. Based on the revelation we received from Eve, friends, your emotions, although are yours, they are unreliable source. This is the key to mental health on the spiritual, emotional, and behavioral components of a person are strictly subordinate to mind and the mind to the will of God. Perhaps the most vivid conflict between the voice of mind against the voice of emotions is expressed in the history of Israel on the eve of the Babylonian captivity. God calls a young man by name Jeremiah to be a prophet. And the first 19 chapters, he introduces to Jeremiah the course of the problem. This is mostly a big monologue of God to Jeremiah, and only in rare cases, short dialogues. At the end of the 19th chapter... God is sending Jeremiah for his first mission. Jeremiah needs to meet with citizens on the temple square. God is reaching out to people pleading to turn back to him from their wicked ways, that he might forgive him and save them from captivity. And this is what God tells Jeremiah to say. Stand in the courtyard of the house of the Lord and speak to all the cities of Judah that came to worship in the house of the Lord. All the words that I command you to speak to them, do not abate a word. It may be that they will listen and turn each from their the evil way. 
and then I will undo the calamity that I think to do to them for their evil deeds. So what is God doing? Trying to persuade them back, to save them, to spare them. So to turn from their evil ways back to God is a good thing. To continue in disobedience to the will of God is a bad thing. So God is setting before them a good and bad experience again. And Jeremiah comes to the courtyard. He stands there and he speaks. When Pashor, a priest and overseer in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah had prophesied these words, then Pashor struck Jeremiah, the prophet, and put him in the deck. The original language says, and put him in shackles. Jeremiah spends a whole night in shackles. What happened? Why does reasonable advice receive an instant negative emotional reaction? Such as an outburst of anger and rage, condemnation and punishment. Pascor thinks emotions. He believes that Jeremiah is not a patriot, but a traitor to his people because he speaks in the word of God against the apostasy of his people. The next day, his emotions subsided, the mind turned back to its normal, Pastor came and silently released Jeremiah. What do you think? Is Jeremiah a patriot or a traitor? A patriot. He is pleading with people to stop, to come back to God because he wants to prevent from the city to be destroyed and for people annihilated. You see how easy it is to hear what appeals to your emotions and how difficult and even impossible it is to hear the voice of reason. Tell me, what was the reaction of the people that were listening to Jeremiah? Did anyone object to Pashor? Did any? No one. Why not? Isn't because people shared the same sentiments as Pashor did? By his actions, Priest Pascor, as a clergyman, determined what is good and what is bad and set an example for the people to follow. He showed how to be a patriot and how to defend his homeland. 
and thus he satisfied the indignation of the people who had the same sentiments. In the chapter 21, King Zedekiah sends a delegation to Jeremiah, hoping that the Lord will do a miracle and deliver the people from the king of Babylon as he usually did. And Jeremiah declares the will of the Lord. Jeremiah 21, verse 8 through 10. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I offer you the way of life and the way of death. What is God doing? Setting a new good and bad experience. You see, in our life, the tree of life never really disappears. Every single day we are standing by the tree of life, uh, oh, pardon me, of knowledge of good and evil. And every single day we need to make a choice. Would that choice be by the mind that God created to be the capital of our body, or that would be by the emotions that Satan is stirring up? And God says, Behold, I offer you the way of life and the way of death. Whoever remains in the city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. But whoever goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who besiege you, he will live and his soul will be his prey. And then God continues. Verse, uh, chapter 24, verse 5 and 7. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I recognize as good the Jewish immigrants who I sent from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. What is God saying? Those who are going to go to Chaldea, these are good people. And I will make Zedekiah king and evil, I will make Zedekiah king of Judah and his princess and the rest of the people of Jerusalem who remain in this land and live in the land of Egypt. So the Lord has determined what is good and what is bad for the Israel people. Good is to surrender the city and to go into captivity. Bad is to stay in the city and resist. After that, in the chapter 26, verse 7 and 9, Jeremiah has a second meeting. Now he is not meeting only with people, with citizens, but he has a meeting with the highest clergyman of the nation with the priests and prophets. Verse 7. The priests and the prophets and all the people listened to Jeremiah when he spoke these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had said all that the Lord had commanded him to say to all the people, 
Then the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him and said, You must die. Why are you prophesying in the name of the Lord? You can imagine what a stormy emotional confrontation goes in the house of the Lord against the Lord. When the princes of Judah heard of this, they came from the king's house to the house of the Lord and sat at the entrance to the new gate of the house of the Lord. Then the priests and the prophets said to the princes and to all the people, the death sentence of this man, because he prophesies against this city, as you have heard with your own ears. What did Jeremiah do wrong? Anything wrong? Wouldn't you be interested to know the will of God for your life? Did he not convey the reasonable message of God, words of truth and warning, in order to save both the country from destruction and the nation from annihilation? Priests and prophets do not seek to hear the voice of God. They have an instant emotional reaction to his message. Because they operate not by mind, the capital of the body, but by their emotions. In a fit of emotions, priests and prophets make the same mistake as Eve, Cain, and Pascor did. The priests determine what is good and what is bad, based on the emotions contrary to the will of God. Jeremiah was spared by the princess, but only for a little time. Now, Jeremiah is presenting himself before the government with the king and the princess. You see what happens, right? He spoke to the citizens. Then he spoke to the clergymen, to the priests and prophets. Now he speaks to the government. And Jeremiah said, This, says the Lord, whoever remains in the city will die by the sword. Famine and pestilence. But whoever goes out to the Chaldeans will live and his soul will be his Pray. Thus says the Lord, this city will surely be delivered into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon, and he will take it. And what happens next? Pay attention, no emotions. Pascor was very emotional. Priests are very emotional. This guy there in administrative role. No emotions, cold blood reasoning. 
they say to the king. Then the princess said to the king, let this man be put to death because he weakens the hands of the soldiers who remain in this city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man does not want prosperity for these people, but calamity. Unlike Pascor and the priests, with the prophets, we do not see any emotions with the country's top statesmen. They are very calm and they are advocating, recommending the verdict on Jeremiah. They came to a logical and the only correct decision in their understanding to kill Jeremiah as a traitor. I have a question for you. How did it happen that the princess with, with a sober mind arrived to the same conclusions pastor and highest clergy arrived based on their emotions? Are you hearing my question? How possibly the higher authority arrived to the same conclusions having a whole cold mind arriving to the same conclusions pastor and high priest clergy priests and prophets arrived based on their emotions first the priest pastor made his emotions the center of decision making he determined what is good and what is bad based on emotions setting an example for the nation to follow. Second, the highest clergymen, priests and prophets replicated Pascor by making the emotions the center of decision making. They determined for themselves and the nation what is good and what is bad. God's good to go to Babylon is bad to them and God's bad for them to stay in Jerusalem is good to them. And the answer is obvious. Pascor and the clergyman determined what is good and what is bad based on their emotions until it became a societal norm of conduct. If you are repeating the same action over and over again and you are acting upon your emotions Declaring what is good and what is bad, it becomes what? The norm of the society. And when it became the norm of conduct, it turned into a solid foundation for their logical decision making. Do you see how emotional Society, I mean, societal norm of conduct based on emotional give, give grounds for reasoning to make their fault emotions. The princes are bound to the social norm of conduct. Seem not any other way out of this situation. To things that God sees as bad, they see it as good. To things that God sees as good, 
they see it as bad. Listen to this. By compromising the mind to the emotions, making the emotions the decision-making center, they proved the nation's incoherence to God's will. And here is the result. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, besieged Jerusalem. And then in the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the city was taken. The city fell and people were led to captive. And in the book of Daniel, we are reading something very important. The king Nebuchadnezzar gives an order to urgently form a cohort of capable Jewish young men to study in the Babylonian State University for free. Out of this cohort, and I don't know how large was this cohort, 20 people or 60, I believe that it was rather large than small because King Nebuchadnezzar needed politicians to replace to the, the, the antagonistic uh, uh, politicians that were in the captured lands. So he needed a vast majority of trained politicians. And out of these politicians, out of these young men, only four people only four people expressed their complete uncompromising loyalty to God. What are the remaining young people? Why only four? You see, Daniel is giving us the answer in the chapter in the chapter nine, when he is praying the prayer of intercession. He says, Lord sent them to exile because of their sins. Despite the horror of siege and atrocities of the war, besides of the face of the fact that the city fell and the temple was turned to ruins, despite of the fact of, cap of um, captivity accompanied with murder, rape and, humi rape and humiliation, Daniel walked to Babylon with a deep-rooted faith in God with all confidence that although it is painful, and there is a lot of suffering, he knew that it is God's will. And it is good. Despite of all pains. Contrary, the rest of the young people who went to Babylon were angry at God. The atrocities of the world deepened their indignation and by the time they arrived to Babylon, they wanted to have nothing in common with God. Coming to Babylon, they indeed became Babylonians. Dear church, 
we are going through our crisis. Whether, wherever that is personal, a crisis in family, a crisis in community, a crisis in church, a crisis in the country, you have only really two options. To study yourself against the God's word and make sure that your mind that is given by God as a capital of your body is not being compromised and enslaved by the demonic character driven by emotions. We studied three things crucial to conflict resolution and personal salvation. First, we need to study ourselves against the teaching. Self-study is not a Freudian idea, but rather it is God's tool to find ourselves while in the crisis. Second, God created man and determined his mind to be the capital of the body, the center of decision-making, but the serpent reformatted man by placing the emotions as the center of decision-making while making the mind a subservient to the emotions. The subordination of the mind to the emotions is the creation of Satan in humans, which makes communication with God impossible and communication with one's neighbor fratricidal. And the third, the public norms of what is good and what is bad were formed based on the emotions of Pascor and the highest clergyman and was used by the country's governing body as a logical basis for the decision-making that contradicted the very reasonable will of God. Paul is contenting. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. As a child of God, I believe I have a big task on my hands to dig in deeper in myself and into the scripture. Should I want to save myself and others? Do not conform to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may know what God's will is. Good, pleasant, and perfect. So, Stone Tower Church, each member, guests, visitors who are listening and watching us on YouTube, I implore you on behalf of Jesus, human, where are you? Let us pray. Gracious God, this question you asked from the very beginning when the world of Adam and Eve was in crisis. When they were in crisis, mentally, emotionally, physically, 
And you did everything on your part, Father, to help them reassess their experience. You are calling us to a big task today. To take heed unto ourselves in the light of your scripture. Father, let no man and woman in this church take this lightly. And I pray, Father, that the eyes of every individual will turn into their introspection. Because they are precious and their salvation is important. I entrust you with Stone Tower Church, with the dynamics that you will lead us. And you will not lead us into captivity, but you will lead us into your freedom. Let us align our hearts to see things right. If they are right with you, to stay with what is right. And if they are good with you, to stay with what is good. And what is bad, it belongs to Satan. We have nothing in common with it. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.